This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Dittman, Liverpool, United Kingdom. Web address MercurialSpirit.co.uk. The Trumpet Major by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Two. Somebody knocks and comes in. Miller Loveday was the representative of an ancient family of corn grinders, whose history is lost in the mists of antiquity. His ancestral line was contemporaneous with that of de Ross, Howard, and de la Zouche. But, owing to some trifling deficiency in the possessions of the house of Loveday, the individual names and intermarriages of its members were not recorded during the Middle Ages and thus their private lives in any given century were uncertain. But it was known that the family had formed matrimonial alliances with farmers not so very small, and once with a gentleman tanner, who had for many years purchased after their death the horses of the most aristocratic persons in the county, fiery steeds that earlier in their career had been valued at many hundred guineas. It was also ascertained that Mr. Loveday's great-grandparents had been eight in number, and his great-great-grandparents sixteen, every one whom reached to years of discretion. At every stage backwards his sires and gammas thus doubled and doubled, till they became a vast body of Gothic ladies and gentlemen of the rank known as serfs or villains full of importance to the country at large, and ramifying through the unwritten history of England. His immediate father had greatly improved the value of their residence by building a new chimney and setting up an additional pair of millstones. Overcombe Mill presented at one end the appearance of a hard-working house slipping into the river, and at the other of an idle, genteel place, half cloaked with creepers at this time of year, and having no visible connection with flower. It had hips instead of gables, giving it a round-shouldered look. Four chimneys with no smoke coming out of them, two zigzag cracks in the wall, several open windows, with a looking-glass here and there inside, showing its warped back to the passers-by. Snowy dimity curtains waving in the draught, two mill doors, one above the other, and the upper enabling a person to step out upon nothing at a height of ten feet from the ground. A gaping arch vomiting the river, and a lean long-nosed fellow looking out from the mill doorway, who was the hired grinder, except when a bulging fifteen-stone man occupied the same place, namely the miller himself. Behind the mill door, and invisible to the mere wayfarer who did not visit the family, were chalked addition and subtraction sums, many of them originally done wrong, and the figures half rubbed out and corrected, noughts being turned into nines and ones into twos. These were the miller's private calculations. There were also chalked in the same place rows and rows of strokes, like open palings, representing the calculations of the grinder, who in his youthful ciphering studies had not gone so far as Arabic figures. In the court in front were two worn-out millstones, made useful again by being let in level with the ground. Here people stood to smoke and consider things in muddy weather, 
and cats slept on the clean surfaces when it was hot. In the large stubbard tree in the corner of the garden was erected a pole of larch fir, which the miller had bought with others at a sale of small timber in Dammer's Wood one Christmas week. It rose from the upper boughs of the tree to about the height of a fisherman's mast, and on the top was a vane in the form of a sailor with his arm stretched out. When the sun shone upon this figure it could be seen that the greater part of his countenance was gone, and the paint washed from his body so far as to reveal that he had been a soldier in red before he became a sailor in blue. The image had, in fact, been John, one of our coming characters, and was then turned into Robert, another of them. This revolving piece of statuary could not, however, be relied on as a vane, owing to the neighbouring hill which formed variable currents of wind. The leafy and quieter wing of the mill-house was the part occupied by Mrs. Garland and her daughter, who made up in summer-time for the narrowness of their quarters by overflowing into the garden on stools and chairs. The parlour or dining-room had a stone floor, a fact which the widow sought to disguise by double carpeting, lest the standing of Anne and herself should be lowered in the public eye. Here now the midday meal went lightly and mincingly on, as it does when there is no greedy carnivorous man to keep the dishes about, and was hanging on the clothes when somebody entered the passage as far as the chink of the parlour door, and tapped. This proceeding was probably adopted to kindly avoid giving trouble to Susan, the neighbour's pink daughter, who helped at Mrs. Garland's in the morning, but was at the moment particularly occupied in standing on the water-butt and gazing at the soldiers with an inhaling position of the mouth and circular eyes. There was a flutter in the little dining-room. The sensitiveness of habitual solitude makes heart beat for the preternaturally small reasons, and a guessing of who the visitor might be. It was some military gentleman from the camp, perhaps. No, that was impossible. It was the parson. No, he would not come at dinner-time. It was the well-informed man who travelled with drapery and the best Birmingham earrings. Not at all. His time was not till Thursday at three. Before they could think further, the visitor moved forward another step, and the diners got a glimpse of him through the same friendly chink that had offered him a view of the garland dinner-table. "'Oh, it's only love day!' This approximation to nobody was the miller above mentioned, a hale man of fifty-five or sixty, hale all through, as were many in those days, and not merely veneered with purple by exhilarating victuals and drinks, though the latter were not at all despised by him. His face was indeed rather pale than otherwise, for he had just come from the mill. It was capable of immense changes of expression. Mobility was its essence. A roll of flesh forming a buttress to his nose on each side, and a deep ravine lying between his lower lip and the tumulus represented by his chin. These fleshy lumps moved stealthily, as if of their own accord, whenever his fancy was tickled. His eyes having lighted on the tablecloth, plates and viands, he found himself in a position which had a sensible awkwardness for a modest man who always liked to enter only at seasonable times, 
the presence of a girl of such pleasantly soft ways as Anne Garland, she who could make apples seem like peaches, and throw over her shillings the glamour of guineas when she paid him for flour. "'Dinner is over, neighbour Loveday. Please come in,' said the widow, seeing his case. The miller said something about coming in presently, but Anne pressed him to stay, with a tender motion of her lips as it played on the verge of a solicitous smile without quite lapsing into one, her habitual manner when speaking. Loveday took off his low-crowned hat and advanced. He had not come about pigs or fowl this time. "'You have been looking out, like the rest of us, no doubt, Mrs. Garland, at the mampus of soldiers that have come upon the down. Well, one of the horse regiments is the, the dragoons, my son John's regiment, you know.' The announcement, though it interested them, did not create such an effect as the father of John, who seemed to anticipate. But Anne, who liked to say pleasant things, replied, "'The dragoons look nicer than the foot, or the German cavalry either.' "'They are a handsome body of men,' said the miller, in a disinterested voice. "'Faith, I didn't know they were coming, though it may be in the newspaper all the time. But old Derryman keeps it so long that we never know things till they be in everybody's mouth.' This Derryman was a squireen living near, who was chiefly distinguished in the present warlike times by having a nephew in the yeomanry. "'We were told that the yeomanry went along the turnpike road yesterday,' said Anne, "'and they say they were a pretty sight, and quite soldierly.' "'Ah, well, they be not regulars,' said Miller Loveday, keeping back harsher criticism as uncalled for, but inflamed by the arrival of the dragoons, which had been the exciting cause of his call, his mind would not go to yeomanry. "'John has not been home these five years,' he said. "'And what rank does he hold now?' said the widow. "'He's trumpet major, ma'am, and a good musician.' The miller, who was a good father, went on to explain that John had seen some service too, when the regiment was lying in the neighbourhood, more than eleven years before, which put his father out of temper with him, as he had wished him to follow on at the mill. But as the lad had enlisted seriously, and as he had often said that he would be a soldier, the miller had thought that he would let Jack take his chance in the profession of his choice. Loveday had two sons, and the second was now brought into the conversation by a remark of Anne's that neither of them seemed to care for the miller's business. No, said Loveday in a less buoyant tone. Robert, you see, must needs go to sea. "'He is much younger than his brother,' said Mrs. Garland. "'About four years,' the miller told her. "'His soldier son was two and thirty, and Bob was twenty-eight. "'When Bob returned from his present voyage, "'he was to be persuaded to stay and assist as grinder in the mill, "'and go to sea no more.' "'A sailor miller,' said Anne. "'Oh, he knows as much about mill business as I do,' said Loveday. "'He was intended for it.' you know, like John. But bless me, he continued, I am before my story. I'm come here particularly to ask you, ma'am, and you, and my honey, if you will join me, and a few friends, at a little homely supper, that I shall gee to please the chap now he's come. I can do no less than have a bit of a randy, as the saying is, 
now that he's here safe and sound. Mrs. Garland wanted to catch her daughter's eye. She was in some doubt about her answer, but Anne's eye was not to be caught, for she hated hints, nods, and calculations of any kind, and in matters which should be regulated by impulse. And the matron replied, If so be tis possible, we'll be there. You will tell us the day? He would, as soon as he had seen son John. "'Twill be rather untidy, you know, owing to my having no woman folks in the house, and my man David is a poor dunder-headed feller for getting up a feast. Poor chap! His sight is bad, that's true, and he's very good at making the beds, and oiling the legs of chairs and other furniture, or I should have got rid of him years ago. "'You should have a woman to attend to the house, Loveday,' said the widow. "'Yes, I should, but—' "'Well, tis a fine day, neighbours. Hark! I fancy I hear the noise of pots and pans up at the camp, or my ears deceive me. Poor fellows, they must be hungry. Good day to you, ma'am.' And the miller went away. All that afternoon Overcombe continued in a ferment of interest in the military investment, which brought the excitement of an invasion without the strife. There were great discussions on the merits and appearance of the soldiery, the event opened up to the girls unbounded possibilities of adoring and being adored, and to the young men an embarrassment of dashing acquaintances which quite superseded falling in love. Thirteen of these lads incontinently stated, within the space of a quarter of an hour, that there was nothing in the world like going for a soldier. The young women stated little, but perhaps thought the more though in justice they glanced round towards the encampment from the corners of their blue and brown eyes in the most demure and modest manner that could be desired. In the evening the village was lively with soldiers' wives. A tree full of starlings would not have rivalled the chatter that was going on. These ladies were very brilliantly dressed, with more regard for colour than for material. Purple, red and blue bonnets were numerous, with bunches of cock's feathers, and one had on an Arcadian hat of green sarsenet, turned up in front to show her cap underneath. It had once belonged to an officer's lady, and was not so much stained, except where the occasional storm of rain, incidental to a military life, had caused the green to run and stagnate in curious watermarks like peninsulas and islands. Some of the prettiest of these butterfly wives had been fortunate enough to get lodgings in the cottages, and were thus spared the necessity of living in huts and tents on the down. Those who had not been so fortunate were not rendered more amiable by the success of their sisters-in-arms, and called them names which brought forth retorts and rejoinders, till the end of these alternative remarks seemed dependent upon the close of the day. One of these new arrivals, who had a rosy nose and a slight thickness of voice, which, as Anne said, she couldn't help, poor thing, seemed to have seen so much of the world, and to have been in so many campaigns, that Anne would have liked to take her into their own house, so as to acquire some of that practical knowledge of the history of England, which the lady possessed, and which could not be got from books but the narrowness of Mrs. Garland's rooms absolutely forbade this, and the houseless treasury of experience was obliged to look for quarters elsewhere. That night Anne retired early to bed. The events of the day 
cheerful as they were in themselves, had been unusual enough to give her a slight headache. Before getting into bed, she went to the window, and lifted the white curtains that hung across it. The moon was shining, though not as yet into the valley, but just peeping above the ridge of the down, where the white cones of the encampment were softly touched by its light. The quarter-guard and foremost tents showed themselves prominently, but the body of the camp, the officers' tents, kitchens, canteen, and appurtenances in the rear, were blotted out by the ground because of its height above her. She could discern the forms of one or two sentries moving to and fro across the disk of the moon at intervals. She could hear the frequent shuffling and tossing of the horses tied to the pickets, and in the other direction the miles-long voice of the sea, whispering a louder note at those points of its length were hampered in its ebb and flow by some jutting promontory or group of boulders. Louder sounds suddenly broke this approach to silence. They came from the camp of the dragoons, were taken up further to the right by the camp of the Hanoverians, and further on still by the body of infantry. It was the tattoo. Feeling no desire to sleep, she listened yet longer, looked at Charles's wain swinging over the church tower, and the moon ascending higher and higher over the right-hand streets of tents, where, instead of parade and bustle, there was nothing going on but snores and dreams. The tired soldiers lying by this time under their proper canvases, radiating like spokes from the pole of each tent. At last Anne gave up thinking, and retired like the rest. The night wore on, and except for the occasional All's well. of the sentries, no voice was heard in the camp or in the village below. End of chapter 2